Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In The Presidents versus the Press, the endless battle between the White House and the media from the Founding Fathers to Fake News, published by Dutton in 2020, Harold Holzer examines the dual rise of the American presidency and the media that shaped it. From Washington to Trump, he chronicles the disputes and distrust between these core institutions that define the United States of America, revealing that the essence of their confrontation is built into the fabric of the nation. Harold Holzer is one of the country's leading authorities on Abraham Lincoln and the political culture of the Civil War era. Holzer was appointed chairman of the U the U.S. Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission by President Bill Clinton and awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush. He currently serves as a director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College, City University of New York. I'm so glad his book has brought him to our program. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book? My background is so complicated. I'll try to be brief. I, um, you know, I've had dual careers all of my professional life. I started as a, a newspaper man, a young newspaper man for a very small weekly newspaper in Manhattan. I worked in government for a time for the mayor of New York. I got into political campaigns for Bella Abzug and Mario Cuomo. I worked for public television in New York for Channel 13. Then I worked for Governor Cuomo when he was governor and ultimately spent the bulk of my career as the uh, uh, senior vice president for external affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And then seven years ago, when I retired from the Met, I was asked to Uh, join Hunter College as director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute, which has been my home, uh, away from home, I guess, on East 65th Street in Manhattan ever since, and where you were a guest recently uh, in a very exciting program on on education in American yeshivas or lack of same, lack of secular education. So that in a nutshell, and just to say that during all, almost all of that time, I've been researching and writing, I guess, avocationally about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. It's been professional, but avocational in that it hasn't been my my principal means of support or nine to five focus. And I've uh, that's that's been my life, which has been exhausting just to recount. <laughs> <laughs> and then, 
and then uh, uh, after that exhausting and, and, and fascinating career, you turned out this wonderful book that captures something of the history uh, of the relationship, really, between the U.S. presidents and the, the media. And, and you did ask me why I turned to this. I should just do, do answer that so it doesn't look like I'm avoiding it. <laughs> I actually was was contracted by by Dutt, my new publishers to do a book on Lincoln and immigration, which I thought was timely. And um, it just occurred to me while I was getting ready to start it, we were just getting into the, um, we had just come through the 20s, what campaign? The 20, when did Hillary run against Trump? I'm so confused now. 2016. And, of course, all of Donald Trump's tropes about fake news and the enemies of the, of the state, enemies of the people, had permeated that campaign. And I just thought, you know, the words of the song, which you probably don't know because it's an old popular song, how long has this been going on? It suddenly occurred to me, and, and knowing Lincoln and the press so well, because I'd written a book just on that, and knowing what a fraught relationship he had and how um, the press was governed by political parties in those days, I thought it would be an interesting book to do. So I went to my publisher and I said, can we put a hold on or a stay on immigration? And let me do this first. And that's what I did. I started right after Trump beat Hillary Clinton. And I worked on it for three and a half years. And then we brought it out in time for the 2020 campaign. I don't think it, I don't know if it made any difference, but and that's that's why I did it. And that's why I did it when I did it. Right. Right. Um, well, uh, let's see if we could go back in history to start off talking about um, uh, the press during the time of George Washington. Uh, what role did John Fenno's Gazette of the United States play in fostering party politics during Washington's presidency? Well, uh, Fenno was the only man in town for a while, and the town was Philadelphia. That was the capital. And the Gazette was the official newspaper of the administration. So really, there was not much news in the Capitol that wasn't just a mere report and a flattering one at that of the Federalist Party's initiatives. And after a while, the president's own secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson, who happened to be of a different political persuasion, one of the dangers of having nonpartisan or multipartisan cabinets, decided that this wasn't very American, whatever that meant so early in our history. But he imported a newspaper man named Philip Freno. Um, it's confusing because it's Freno and Freno, and their newspapers have like-minded, like-sounding titles, to come from New York and start a Democratic Republican, I'll just say Democratic, just to make it simple, newspaper in Philadelphia. And pretty soon, the there was anti-administration news being promulgated and published on a regular basis, and it drove George Washington to distraction. And he was just as angry about negative press uh, as Donald Trump was, uh, you know, 250 years later. Right, right. And so the, the idea is that that, um, that, as you said, that the um, uh, John Fenno's uh, 
uh, publication was w- one that was explicitly tied to the 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 president's political party and uh, in, uh, uh, designed to promote its message as news. Yeah, absolutely right, and not just for uh, philosophical reasons. Or I dare say it started that way. Um, they were remunerated for their loyalty. They got government announcements, got you know, paid advertising. Uh, they got scoops. And by the same token, once Freno got to Philadelphia to start the opposition paper, Jefferson made sure that State Department advertising was placed in the in the in the um, the Democratic paper in Freno's paper. So this was a battle of you know. Uh, philosophies and uh, money and politics, plus a change, right? It's the same today in a certain way, and that's and that's the cult. That was the culture of of the period, and um, you know, accusations back and forth, anonymous articles. Uh, Alexander Hamilton wrote for the Fenno paper, but not with his real name, and the charges were thrown back and forth, and. There was a difference in philosophy, and that is that Fenno and the Federalists believed in, you know, forging friendly foreign relations with England, and they believed in a federal system of the economy. and And Jefferson and the Fenno paper believed that the American alliance of the future should be with France, and that uh, the states should govern their own activities without without a very strong federal government. So, real philosophical differences too. Right, right. And who founded the Philadelphia Aurora? And uh, what um, what uh, uh, position did that paper take towards President Washington? This is like a this is like a final exam. So far, I'm doing so far. I, you're jogging my memory. So as I if I'm right, and you read the book more recently than I did, I guess that was that paper was started by uh, Benjamin Franklin's grandson, whose name was Benjamin Franklin Bache. And the Aurora, uh, and, and he was mad at Washington. He thought that Washington had dissed his his uh, grandfather and stuff. And Bates was very close to his grandfather. He'd been in France with him. He'd been educated by him. He'd been apprenticed as a printer. And at any rate, um, Bates was even more brutal to uh, Washington than Freno. The two of them were now ganging up on Washington. And I will say, and not to preempt what may be your next question, but George Washington is given enormous credit for stepping down after two terms and saying, time to turn over the presidency, an act of grace that is not too common today in, in, in our political leaders, some political leaders. Um, did he do it only because he thought that a, as the first president, he needed to set an example of limiting his tenure and transitioning yeah, I think so, but also because he couldn't deal with the press anymore. I re- and and he said as much in his farewell message. He said there were you know there were criminatory attacks by the press are bad, and the implication. And by the way, Hamilton, his editor, made him take that stuff out of the final address. But we do have the drafts, and clearly, he ascribed some of his you know being sick of the the office to the press criticism. Right. And it turns it turns some people on, it turns some people off. <laughs> right. And what um I'm curious, what kinds of things were Be- was Beach criticizing Washington for? 
And was there any validity to these criticisms? Well, he said he was flourishing about the town and like a king, that he celebrated his own birthday. Um, some of them were, some of the criticisms were very personal and irrational. Um, he was accused of breaking the law under which presidents could not leave the Capitol while Congress was in session. In fact, Washington had ridden out to Pennsylvania to try to take personal command of the of the American army to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. And he thought that was his role as commander-in-chief. So it was a mountain out of a molehill. So it was nitpicking um, that he was too arrogant, too self-celebratory, behaved like a monarch, wouldn't shake hands with people in the White House, which was true. He, there were bows instead, but, you know, different culture. Um, and, you know, Washington got so angry at one point that he allegedly threw the newspaper on the floor and ground it into shreds with his boots. So, uh, and he used the term false news, which sort of is a, a presages uh, Donald Trump's use of the term fake news. So it's not new. Right. And and um, how did, uh, aside from uh, sort of tearing apart the newspaper uh, with his with his boots, uh, how did Washington respond to these personal attacks from from newspapers? You know, not directly. Washington didn't believe in answering. It was such a different world different political culture. Presidents were seen but not heard. You know, they did an annual message that was about it. They didn't give speeches. In fact, presidential speeches were not common for more than a century. Um, he wrote some private letters to Jefferson. He wrote some private letters to Jefferson's successor as Secretary of State, but he didn't object. He didn't want to dignify. He just got mad privately and then went home to Mount Vernon. And he was followed by attacks uh, all the way to Mount Vernon. Right. And uh, what was the Alien and Sedition Act, and what restrictions did it place on press freedom? So now we've finally gotten away from Washington. Now we're with his successor, John Adams. And John Adams, who thought that he was going to be the darling of the opposition press because he got some good press from the Democratic press right at the start, it soon turned um, against him. And Congress passed, and Adams signed, an act under which merely mocking or criticizing or ridiculing the president would subject a newspaper to, a newspaper man, to charges of sedition and trial in the federal court system. And when you think about the federal court system, there are some people who think the federal court system is stacked today um, because of the Trump Supreme Court. But in Adams' day, the Supreme Court was all one party because there'd only been one party appointing federal judges. So Democratic editors were arrested, they were tried, they were fined, they were imprisoned, and they were treated uh, pretty uh, brutally. Uh, one person in particular who we can come back to later was... Um, Thomas Callender, who had mocked Adams. He was a loyal Jeffersonian and, in fact, served prison time in Richmond, horrified that he was in, in an integrated prison, which was like the unkindest cut of all in 1800. And um, Federalists believed in this kind of repression. George Washington thought that Adams wasn't vigorous enough in pursuing it. 
So the ex-president was heard from. And this went on all through the Adams in one and only term as president. And how did Adams defend the Alien and Sedition Act? He thought that the mockery of the American executive would render, would weaken the United States abroad. That was his justification. Um, his motivation may have lay, lay elsewhere, but his justification was in maintaining the, the reputation of this infant country that needed, uh, supposedly needed all the buttressing it could get in a public relations sense. Right. And what role did President Jefferson play in promoting newspapers that were loyal to him and his party? Well, he was uh, he was very he was very um, um, active in recruiting uh, newspapers for his own benefit. When he became president, I mean, the first thing is that the Sedition Act sunset when Jefferson became president, he would never have supported it. It wasn't that he was in favor of complete freedom of the press. He was such a states' rights guy that he believed that there should be state libel laws that prosecuted the press. So he did not believe unequivocally in um, in uh, uh, freedom of the press. But um, so he supported Democratic newspapers all through all through his tenure and before, as we as we've discussed when he brought Freno to. To uh, to Philadelphia, but now in Washington he had he kept Freno in Philadelphia, as uh, but he created a, a newspaper in Washington to be the official uh, mouthpiece of the administration. Remember, these were the days before press releases, press secretaries, communications directors, press conferences, press interviews, uh, Twitter, right? Without, without saying. The way the president got his message across in a positive way was to get a friendly newspaper to publish it with praise, ideally. And that's that's what Jefferson did. And that's what his two predecessors had done. I mean, Washington sort of did it hands off, but Adams and Jefferson were very strong. And then at the end of his life, Jefferson like turns against all newspapers, says the only thing worth reading in a newspaper is an advertisement, because they're the only things that tell the truth. Um and that he doesn't read newspapers anymore. Um, it's, it's very telling to me that when he died and his books were collected and sent to Washington from, from Monticello, where his collection formed the nucleus of the Library of Con- the original Library of Congress, they didn't just find all his books. They found almost every newspaper he'd ever read. It saved every one of them. So that was the nucleus of a great national collection. A lot of the books burned, but a lot of the newspapers didn't, interestingly. Uh-huh. Ah, well, burning by that plague of the 19th century fires. Right. Well, um, we're, we're going to shift a bit. Uh, we're going to jump ahead a bunch. Uh, and to talk about Lincoln, as you mentioned, um, I mentioned also uh, Lincoln is, um, Abram Lincoln is one of your, your really area of expertise. And um, want to make sure we have a little bit of time to talk about Lincoln. Um, what sorts of measures did President Lincoln undertake against the press? Well, let me preface it by saying that Lincoln grew up politically in a very partisan press culture. First as a Whig and then as a Republican, he wrote for newspapers. He um, strategized with friendly newspaper editors to advance his political uh, gain uh, aims, 
and Democratic newspapers were his enemy. They criticized everything he said, and he criticized everything Democrats said. It was a really roiling culture. Um, I mean, Stephen A. Douglas, his lifetime political rival, once had a like a fist fight in the mud of Springfield, Illinois, with the with the Republican editor. That's the kind of violence that was part of the newspaper wars. So you know, Lincoln r- rides to the presidency on you know, doesn't actively campaign. The newspapers do, and they prevail. He goes to Washington. He names dozens of newspaper men to government jobs. Um, Somebody joked that the offices, that the New York Tribune, which was a strong Republican paper, would no longer be able to publish the paper because so many of its newsroom people had gone into federal federal jobs. Um, And he rewarded editors and et cetera, et cetera. Once the Civil War starts, there are two different occasions on which Lincoln believes he can, there's more he can do than just reward loyal newspapers, that he is entitled to punish opposition papers. The first is in the secession moment when he worries about border states like Missouri and Maryland, worries that they will leave the Union and then make the Confederacy the majority of the country. And to keep those states loyal, he cracks down on opposition newspapers. He shuts them, the army shuts them down. Editors are imprisoned um, without trial, by the way. My, one of my, my favorite case, but one of the, my favorite to talk about is in Baltimore, where a newspaper editor had been advocating Maryland secession and the army shut him down and placed him in Fort McHenry, which is a fortress in, in Baltimore Harbor. The irony is his name was Francis Key Howard. He was the grandson of Francis Scott Key, who had written the Star Spangled Banner by when he was when he saw the flag over that same fort surviving the bombardments of the War of 1812 half a century earlier. Now, the grandson was inside looking out, not outside looking in. And uh, so that was a wave of repression that was justified by keeping the states loyal. Then um, uh, three months later, the first Union volunteers completed their 90, 100-day enlistments. And Lincoln, with the war continuing, had to get volunteers to re-enlist. He desperately needed them. And some newspapers in the North began recommending that the war not be prosecuted and that soldiers not re-enroll. Lincoln shut them down too. Newspapers in New York and New England, they were shut down. The editors went to a fort in Brooklyn, um, um, Fort Lafayette, which no longer exists. Um, And um, the crackdowns continued all through the war. So Lincoln believed in in closing off what he viewed as disloyal discourse. What is disloyal? What is loyal opposition? What is disloyal? It would remain a matter of debate, if you weren't afraid to do the debate, throughout the Civil War. And there have been many criticisms of Lincoln for suspending constitutional liberties and guarantees during the rebellion. And his argument was that during a Civil War, civil liberties 
the writ of habeas corpus can all be suspended if, the, if there's an open rebellion against the United States. And as he put it, um, I'm not going to risk the entire Constitution to save one clause, freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Very much debated today, but you asked me to review what he did, and that's, that's what he did. And meanwhile, he continued to court friendly newspapers for the rest of his tenure. Right. And I'm curious, did Congress investigate Lincoln's repressive measures against the press at the time? So there was a House committee that did investigate. They subpoenaed one of the imprisoned editors. He was escorted to Washington. There was a, I've read every bit of the handwritten testimony. I don't think anybody else in the world has. It's pretty interesting. By then, there was an official censor in the telegraph office. Not only was there an official censor in the telegraph office, but the telegraph wires had been moved to the War Department, which is what we called the Defense Department in those days. So it was a little bit inhibiting to send some criticism. They would go to the office and say, I have a great editorial criticizing Lincoln that I want to send. A, you're in the War Department, and B, there's a censor who's reviewing it. So yeah, there were lots of cantankerous testimony and then a funny thing happened on the way to the to the decision. Abraham Lincoln's annual message to Congress was leaked to a newspaper. And there were people who believed that the first lady not only leaked it, but sold it to make money to buy jewelry and dresses. And it's entirely possible that she got money to, you know, and I guess the committee sort of started working on that. <laughs> And then they never really reported the truth of it or whatever they found out because they didn't want to embarrass the president. So the whole thing died. No legislation ever came out of those committee hearings. And that was the only investigate, the only independent investigation of the period. If you look at the editorials of the Republican papers, the New York Times, the New York Tribune, they all said that the freedom of the press is not a guarantee during a war, during a, a war, and certainly in wars of in years to come, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, um, not so much Lyndon Johnson. We can talk to that. Barack Obama have all cracked down on the media during wars. Right. So I am curious. You, you mentioned that 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 there was discussion at the time and ever since then uh, among scholars, uh, um, you know, judging um, Lincoln's actions one way or the other. I'm curious if you have a personal take on, on this issue in terms of whether it really was justified for Lincoln to take these extraordinary measures. Sure. And, you know, I don't think it's justified to look backwards and say, which people do oh, it wouldn't have made a difference. He overreached, he overreacted. We could have survived. Because in real time, at the time, Lincoln had no way of knowing that a newspaper editorial couldn't inflame a town to riot against black people as they did in the draft riots in New York, inflamed by newspaper editorials in July 1863. He had no way of knowing that bad newspaper reviews would not inhibit people from volunteering. There was no draft until two and a half years into the war. So it's easy for us to say he shouldn't have done it. 
it wasn't necessary. But it wasn't easy for Lincoln to assume that it wouldn't make any difference. So again, it's not the greatest story of American um, liberal democracy or freedom of the press. But I think Lincoln was justified at the time in saving the Constitution by abrogating some of its pieces. Right. All right. Well, yeah, skipping you one one more aphorism that Lincoln used to justify it. He loved, he loved to animal and body part illusions. Don't worry, this is going to be clean. You won't have to censor. He said, and this was a very telling metaphor in a period when there were so many amputations during the Civil War. He said, you would always cut off a leg to save a body, but you would never kill a body to save and preserve a leg. For Lincoln, freedom of the press was a leg, and you might have to remove it to save the body. Um, but you'd never kill the whole Constitution because you were enamored of that piece of it. I mean, the only thing wrong with that metaphor is that the, you can't reattach the leg later. But nobody, nobody made that point at the time that I ever saw. So, Right. Right. All right. Well, skipping ahead a bit, um, by the time Theodore Roosevelt became president, major changes had occurred in the newspaper world. What were these changes and how did they impact the relationship between presidents and the media? And it's amazing that he was the right person at the right time for this change that you've asked about. Um, partisan journalism was finally dying in the end of the 19th century, replaced by front page journalists. Um, the people who wrote uh, from Washington now were interested not in praise or condemnation so much as scoops, getting the, getting the stories first, headlines. And Teddy Roosevelt was made for scoops and headlines. Um, someone once said that uh, Theodore Roosevelt wasn't happy unless he was uh, the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral <laughs> and, the baby, and the baby at every christening. He was the center of attention. He expected to be in the press as the lead story every day. And by and large, he was. And he did it. He no longer had to befriend editors because, again, they were more sensationalist than they were um, uh, driven by philosophy or partisanship. He had to befriend reporters. And what he instituted that changed the nature of the beast forever is the kind of press, informal press conference. Every, every day at about one o'clock, he would invite his barber to shave him. God forbid a president would have to shave himself. Lincoln had a barber to shave him as well. Um, and during this, what was called the barber's hour, he would welcome the press in for off the record um, chats about things. And that's how the tradition of the press meeting the president on a regular basis began. And the press loved it. TR loved it even though they started to play games with him, knowing that he would get excited during these sessions, they would always ask the most provocative questions when the barber's straight edge razor was at his neck, because he would always jump up and rip off the bib and throw it down, that they wanted to see if they could draw blood. I don't think they ever did. And at the, by the way, at the same time that he was a great personality and you could call him a PR specialist before public relations existed. He was also a very um, issue-oriented fellow. And so at the same time he was making headlines, he was working very closely with long-form thought journalists 
like Ida Tarbell and the Muckrakers, they weren't called the Muckrakers yet, to do stories that would uh, uh, buttress his progressive ideas about trust busting and and, uh, workers' rights. So that was, it was a bifurcated approach, but a very interesting one, and it was very successful. Right, right. And got his way on issues and policy, and he became a media celebrity. Don't forget, teddy bears didn't exist until Teddy. <laughs> wow, yes, he certainly, he also contributed a lot of catchphrases uh, to American culture. I don't know if you it's, want to mention one or two well, of them. Most, I mean, all of the things we talk about with press, tr- setting up a trial balloon, that was, uh, that was TR. That's the most famous one. And that means, of course, if you have a controversial or potentially controversial plan, you leak it, it becomes a trial balloon, and the people either knock it down or buttress it, and you know you can kind of measure in advance what support you'll get. What am I forgetting, Zalman? What other good phrases? Uh, about the the um, um, the bully pulpit? Oh, the bully pulpit. That's his. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Great, great, great phrases. And, and by the way, muckrakers, that's his invention too. When he... When he coined the phrase at a press dinner, he didn't mean it as a compliment. He was he was done with Lincoln Steffens and Ida Tarbell. He didn't want any more investigative pieces. So he said, we don't want people anymore who muck the rake. Like, you know, I'm sorry, who rake the muck. I'm sorry. Muck the rake makes no sense. Who rake up the muck. And they became known as the muckrakers. Today it's a great badge of honor. But he meant to say enough with all this crap. <laughs> <laughs> These troublemakers. Exactly. Sure, sure. Uh, moving right along, um, uh, Woodrow Wilson instituted the practice of regular presidential press conferences. Uh, how open to the press was Wilson during these sessions? Uh, he was. Uh, he, he he wasn't happy doing them. <laughs> he stood up at his desk the whole time. They were written. They had to be written questions. He lectured the press told them what he wanted them to do. Not a good idea, right? He, um, he once threatened to punch a photographer in the nose for taking a picture of his daughter on a bicycle, which was considered terribly unladylike, I guess. Um, so he was not much of a press favorite. He also was brutal to the African-American uh, community and the press. He only had one black journalist into the White House, and they it, it was such a disputatious event that he ultimately had him leave, threw him out of the Oval Office. So it was a very rocky tenure. Um, I've actually heard a, he might have been an interesting radio president. Um, He had a very hoarse voice like this. It's only one or two recordings. Um, And he was also, of course, the first president who really conducted either on his own or because of his aides, uh, a deception campaign, at least two big ones. And the one, by the way, I did not write this. I didn't include this in the book. But when I did the paperback version, I got to write about it in the a new, in, I begged them, let me write a new essay for the introduction, just to bring it up to date a little bit with Biden coming in and with this story. And this is the story. He went to Paris to begin the peace conference after the um the uh, World War One, the Treaty of Versailles, ultimately. 
And he got there. With, he brought a press contingent with him. But when he got there, they, they couldn't find him. He wouldn't talk to them. He was just, he had vanished. What happened? He caught the influenza, the Spanish, so-called Spanish flu, which was killing millions of people. And he was just he, supposedly very, very sick, raving, they said. He took about 10 days, and then he kind of weakly came back. Um, I didn't include that in the book because I figured, you know, a pandemic only happens once in history, um, forgetting about all the pandemics that had happened before. Um, nobody's going to be interested in that. So I got, did you know, I in the age of uh, COVID, I got to write about this and and flagellate myself for being stupid about not putting it in. And then later, um, Wilson had a stroke and was confined to the White House, and the press was given only reports about his continuing recovery. And he never really recovered. Right. Right, right. Um, there's a lot more to, to, to talk about about Wilson, but I'm curious, uh, how did the 1917 Espionage Act and the 1918 Sedition Act stifle freedom of the press? Well, the, the two things about the World War I era crackdowns on the press is one, it, you know, it forbade things that made sense, like no more um, listing when ships are departing and ships are entering your two young Zalmas and others, but there actually used to be a shipping news column in the New York Times. And it was written at one point by, by very, they always had really interesting reporters writing it, but they actually wrote the SS Normandy is leaving today. The, uh, the, the, the Queen Mary is coming in a great, reporter named Dick Shepard used to write those columns. It was a character of the first degree at the Times. Um, wonderful friend, too. Anyway, that was all suspended. Air, the, the infant air corps could not be discussed. Munitions could not be discussed. Army forts could not be reported on. And some news, and you know, there was a commensurate with that. There was a crackdown on progressive press, the Jewish press, um, which was considered too radical, was shut down. Um, but I think the most momentous thing Wilson did is start the first government propaganda agency, uh, the information agency, which put out posters and newsreels and had uh, people speaking at silent movie houses and uh, state uh, propaganda given out at state fairs and in libraries, overseas missions, it was an amazing effort, and that really was history making. Right. And speaking of history making, uh, uh, what was so innovative about Franklin Delano Roosevelt's fireside chats? I like that you that segue. Speaking of history making, well, first of all, I, I'm speaking to you from my office at Franklin Roosevelt's one-time home in New York City, and I am two floors above the space where he gave his first fireside chat. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, on a, a day after his election, 80 years ago, plus about a month as we speak, um, uh, he, uh, he went into his parlor, his upstairs parlor, and spoke for about a minute for the radio in front of his fireside and then repeated the little speech for the, for the, uh, f uh, for the, for the newsreels. I'm trying to think of which newsreel, but it was the, news of the day, so it could be broadcast in movie theaters. 
in the days before 24-hour news, the only way people could get their visual news was in newsreels, which were sort of between main features in the movie houses, the news of the day. Fox Movie Tone News. I urge everyone to do Franklin Roosevelt's address day after election, 1932, on Google. And you will hear it and then see it. It just It's only a minute, each one, and it's fascinating. So he, having learned the idea of communicating by radio, he held or staged 28 fireside chats over the next 12 years. But people thought he was on all the time. Um, because he was on the radio often. But these fireside chats went outside the realm of the press, and Roosevelt became the first to speak on issues directly to the people on a regular and technologically innovative way. At the same time, he held two press conferences a week, almost every week of his presidency, in Washington, in New York, at Hyde Park, in Warm Springs, Georgia, where his you know, he went for uh, rejuvenation for his polio um, um, it, overseas on battleships, on cruisers, and at summit conferences, 998 press conferences in all. Can you imagine? Wow. Mr. Biden has held four. <laughs> All right. I'm curious, how did the American public respond to the fireside chats? They, that was American scripture. It was hearing their president speaking to them. His tone, and again, you can hear them on Google. His t- he was not bombastic. If you hear previous presidents attempting to use the radio, they're giving big presidential speeches. Roosevelt is speaking intimately, hopefully like I'm speaking to you, though I'm not being too bombastic. He was having a conversation with the American people. It was revolutionary. He understood radio innately, and maybe it was from listening to Jack Benny and Bing Crosby and their brilliant way of talking across to millions of people as if he was in their parlors and living rooms. That's That was the genius of it, that he adapted that. Um, so he was just, an, meanwhile, don't underestimate Eleanor, who is writing a daily newspaper column and who is always on, has her own radio commercially sponsored radio series where she interviews public. Now, she never mastered it as well as he did, but for progressives, and she was a major, major figure also. And he needed to be on the radio. Father Coughlin, the leading white nationalist anti-Semite of the day, was on the radio all the time, but he was screaming. Roosevelt was speaking like this, conversationally. My friends, I hope you all have a globe in front of you, as I asked you during my last chat. By the way, when he asked them, the globe, there was not a globe to be found in the country, in any store. I've asked you to, to try and follow along with me. I'm going to tell you where we have strength, some of these places you're going to be hearing about in the Pacific that we need to familiarize ourselves with. The whole country followed along on maps and globes as Rose, as you know, Dr. Roosevelt had become General Roosevelt. And of course, he earlier he led them through the, you know, you, let me, one of his most famous fireside chats, I want to tell you about banking. Now, it's a tough subject. It's really complicated. I'm learning it myself. 
And this is to a country that people have money in banks. They never knew they would, thought they would get it out. There was no federal deposit insurance. Amazing, amazing reassurance through that, that extraordinary personality. Right. And um, so around the time of the, the fireside chats or some of them um, uh, happened during during World War II. Um, and at the same time, there's also the Office of Censorship uh, operating at that time. How did the Office of Censorship operate during World War II? Same way it did in World War One, And Roosevelt, who was a Roosevelt, meaning he was related to Theodore, distantly but more directly by marriage to his niece, um, um, believed that more that you know loose lips sink ships. That was the mantra of the day. So newspapers were not allowed to to report on almost anything he said in his press conferences. Um, he would just refuse to answer anything that had that he decided either justifiably or just for convenience sake that he didn't want to talk about. And once again, like Wilson, and in whose administration he served, that's what I was going to say when I said he was a Roosevelt, but he was a Wilson man. He created a a war information office. And this time, rather than use posters and things like that, he used the country's top movie directors, John Ford, Frank Capra, and John Huston, and George Stevens, they all went out and made propaganda films, beautiful, beautiful films about the American War and um, important documentary films about the camps when when George Stevens got to Germany. Um, but so it was both, you know, again, like Wilson, a, a combination of repression and uh, propaganda. Right, right. And uh, skipping ahead a bit, um, how did Spiro Agnew, Richard Nixon's vice president, declare war on the media, and what impact did this have on the media? There's a subject I haven't addressed for a long time. Well, you have to preface it by acknowledging that his boss, Richard Nixon, hated the press. He had a war with the press that began decades before his presidency when he believed he was not getting his due as an anti-communist activist. And um, Agnew, as his handpicked vice president, was given the assignment of taking that hostility public and seeing if he could get traction among the political base. So he began barnstorming and attacking in this bizarrely alliterative uh, speech style the nattering nabobs of negativity. You know, and combined with this almost fascistic negativity, bombastic, you know, show business stuff was a real threat not to renew licenses of newspapers that had broadcast affiliates like the Washington Post and Newsweek did at the time. So there was an undercurrent of menace to the liberal press by the conservative Nixon administration. Fortunately, I mean, fortunately for the country, in my view, now I'm being partisan, um, Agnew was clownish and also corrupt. So ultimately he was driven out of the vice presidency. And um, um, it was his, it, that campaign against the press was viewed as a kind of a, uh, um, 
a buffoonish uh, interlude, but it did give rise to the return of the partisan media in Nick, under Nixon and then uh, um, um, in, on through the Clinton years. Um, um, CNN evolved, and, and but even before that, conservative talk radio took root and um, this whole new medium that was devoted to attacking the liberal establishment took hold and had enormous influence in America on issues like a, like a woman's right to choose and things like that. Right. And um, it seems that uh, President Ronald Reagan got very little scrutiny from the media during his presidency. Is that accurate? And if so, why did he... Uh, seem to uh, evade uh, the kind of presidential scrutiny that so many of his predecessors had to deal with? You know, first of all, he had a brilliant team of, um, uh, of advisors, and they decided to make Reagan available for one major story a day. And if you asked a disobliging question about something other than the story of the day, um, uh, you're out of luck. You weren't going to get an answer. Number two, he invented the weekly radio address, which went on for many presidencies. Each Saturday, he would appear and give a spiel that was then picked up by every radio and television station, the president in his weekly radio address today. And so he got ahead of many stories. Um, And let's not forget that he was a professional communicator and actor. and no fool, he was a very good writer, as we learned only later, kept very interesting diaries and wrote scripts for his radio broadcast years before he became a California governor or president. So all of those things, the three things contributed. But let's never leave out the fact that, you know, if you were nice to people, didn't our mothers tell us this? Be nice to people and they'll be nice to you. Reagan was was a, was a very pleasant personality. He had some real killers working for him who did the dirty work, but that's really smart. He was a charmer. Um, and um, I think part of his success <coughs> was due to that charm offensive, which was natural to him. But, you know, he wasn't always exempt from criticism. In the Iran-Contra period and that, he did get scrutinized very heavily. He rallied for this very decisive press conference without which he might have been impeached, frankly. Right, right, right. Although with Iran-Contra, it seems that uh, he was like the Teflon president. So, uh, you know, there was press scrutiny about the the affair, but then it didn't seem to ever stick to him. So essentially underlings who were significantly below him got tagged with responsibility for... Yeah, I would say a lot of the Teflon wore off a little bit. (laughs) A lot of steel wool was applied to that. I'm always cautioned by my wife, don't use steel wool on... Don't use Brillo on the Teflon. You'll kill it. So I think there was some steel wool applied to the Teflon. But you're right. He was a beloved figure. He was like FDR, totally different political persuasion, but um, he, the, the Americans respond to, as, as the Trump interlude, you know, not going to say anything partisan, showed us enormous personalities 
make a difference. They are compelling figures and they get a lot of supporters around them. Right. All right. All right. Well, skipping ahead a bunch, yeah. um, uh, how many American whistleblowers did the Obama administration prosecute under the Espionage Act compared to previous presidents? Well, I can't do it numerically, but I will say that I was shocked when I did my research and, you know, finally could talk to some living people uh, about a presidency because it's a recent, relatively recent one is that the press was deeply resentful of Obama. He wiretapped people um, uh, and their families uh, and um, uh, sat on freedom of information requests, you know, all in the name of national security, to be sure. But it, And again, looking back, the way we look back on Lincoln, we say this is a terrible thing, but he had inherited, um, you know, it was only eight years after 9-11, and... Um, and there was a fear of uh, of domestic terrorism and in, and in the infiltration of um, of uh, Islamic terrorism in the United States. He was, and so he took extraordinary circumstances. Press didn't like it, to be sure. Um, but uh, I was astonished at the amount of um, lingering resentment that there is against Obama for that period. In my notes, if I have it right. Uh, I have that Obama pro- Obama administration prosecuted nine um, um, uh, whistleblowers, and all previous administrations prosecuted three. Uh, I don't know if that if that's. Uh, I will right. try to remember next time. If, you, if it, it comes from my book, it must be right. It's it, it's from your book, definitely. My <laughs> notes are from your book, but 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 the point is clearly the the Obama administration. Um, was much more aggressive um, with the prosecution yes. of... It's sort of interesting, though, that, Zama, that his staff did not discourage him from doing that. Whereas if you look at all the things that Trump wanted to do, threatened to do, he always had people in his staff world who would put the brakes on or just go behind his back and like try to, to, to curtail his excesses. Right, right. Speaking of, of Trump. Um, Another good segue. Speaking of Trump, <laughs> uh, was Trump's attacks against the media as, quote, fake news fundamentally different from previous presidents' criticisms of the media? You touched on this before, yeah. but I want to give you a chance to address well, it. You know, I go back and forth on this, I have to say. I'm. Um, it, of course, it's reflective of all the president's impatience with criticism. And um, so, yeah, it's it's eerie that Washington used almost the same phrase as Trump did. So in effect, that's not, you know, dispositive of on its own of saying that Trump is maniac. When he gets to enemies of the people, however... He's going from George Washington to Stalin and Goebbels. And that's where I think the problem exists, that it's not just complaining about a story. It's saying that that the press is harming the body politic. When, of course, the, what, the, the tension between the presidents and the press is what keeps both institutions as honest as they can be. The press, the president knows that the press will scrutinize and the press knows that the president will judge and punish and celebrate and invite you to 
the White House correspondence dinner for Macron and all of that good stuff. Um, so that was where Trump stepped beyond the normative, even the traditional, with the enemies of the people. And of course, he keeps repeating it. He's repeated it for six years. And it's scary. Right. To me. Right. Um, all right. There's so much more to talk about in your book, but we're going to run out of time. So here's the last question. Okay. Um, what do you... Um, uh, what is your takeaway from all the history you explore regarding the relationship between U.S. presidents and the media? My takeaway is that um, they are a uh, control on each other, that having the, the press enjoy access and the freedom to criticize a policy is essential to the democracy. Um, some people have said I was too favorable to the presidents over the press in my book, but I did focus on, on you know, ten moments of, of high tension. Um, and I don't think I was really, I bent over backwards to be so sympathetic to many of the presidents I covered. So I think ideally we have a, this, a crucial relationship, probably here unlike any other country, in the world where um, there is a presumption of fair criticism as opposed to a presumption of libelous criticism with every, with every statement by a journalist about a president. Um, at its worst, the relationship can, be, can turn toxic. Whatever you think of Richard Nixon, and I don't think much, I mean, I, probably people can tell my political persuasion from what I've said, you can legitimately ask whether the Washington Post exercised too much control over government at that moment, or was it the press's finest moment that they were almost able single-handedly to inspire the overthrow of a presidency? Um, these are issues that we have to grapple with, and, but it's, it's a uniquely American phenomenon. It's a, the freedom of the press is a unique American phenomenon, and the the safe tensions between the presidents and the press, I think, are crucial as we go forward and test the very survival of American democracy in the next few years, which I think I, gotta, I kind of agree is on the line um, as we look on to 2024 and beyond in the United States. Right, right. Well, thank you for that. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Salman, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And um, when my new book comes out, when I finally do immigration, I'm counting on you to have me back. I look forward to it. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.